This is Mary Lewis at a Tiny Homestead. The podcast comprised entirely of conversations with homesteaders, cottage food producers, and crafters. Today I'm talking with Jill at Heimsoth Farms about food forests. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. So before we really get started, how do you pronounce your farm's name? Heimsoth. That's what I thought, but I didn't want to butcher German. it. Yeah, I didn't want to butcher it. So, mm-hmm. so what do you guys do at your farm? Well, I run a market garden. Um, I grow mostly garlic and onions and other root vegetables in a no-dig method. And we just planted a seven-acre food forest. So we took our um, corn and bean field and we... Uh, we did a TV show with National Geographic called Farm Dreams. And that kind of documented our our transition from corn and beans to planting fruit trees and nut trees and berries and um, thinking more long-term uh, perennial crops. Yeah, the best time to plant a tree is 50 years ago, right? Right. Yeah, but um, the, the next best time to plant a tree is now. Yes. Yes, okay. So we order seedlings from the Missouri Department of Conservation and you can get them in bundles of like 10, 25 and 100 and they're usually like a dollar a piece. So we went in and planted about 500 um, fruit trees and nut trees and then about a thousand berry bushes like elderberry. Wow. How, how long before you see a return on that? Uh, the elderberry part is the fastest. So um, it takes two years for them to produce. So they are, I've got berries on right now, um, the ones that are in their second year, and it'll be in full production in three years. And then a lot of that stuff like the um, pawpaws and stuff is about eight years from the time you plant it to the time you get fruit. And I think um, hazelnuts are, you know, four to five years, things like that. So we'll see though, if we can, we've been having a lot of drought and new trees really need a lot of, um, watering and obviously it's seven acres. So I can't really, uh, water that many trees. Mm -hmm. So every time we lose one, I just order more and I just replant it the next year. So, um, we've got various stages going and we shall see (laughs) hoping for the best. I understand. We have apples on our apple trees. We planted three Octobers ago this year. We have apples this year. So we're really excited and there aren't a lot because we in Minnesota have been going through a very dry summer as well and trying to keep those trees watered has been hell. So we'll see what happens. Um, The only people I've interviewed so far have been in Minnesota. So you're in Missouri. Where sort of in Missouri are you? We're about an hour east of Kansas City. Oh, so you're northern, northern northern-ish, not southern. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like mid, mid Missouri is what we call it. Yeah, so your weather conditions haven't been a lot different than ours this year. Yeah, we've been in a pretty bad drought for the last two years, and mm-hmm. it's really um, making me think strategy long term. So, you know, we do a lot of deep mulching, which really helps retain moisture. And I just ran water lines out into the food forest, um, and that was like $2,800. So it was a oh. big chunk of my profit going back into the farm, but that's farming, you know. But I'm thinking if we're going to have more and more droughts, you know, and unpredictable weather patterns. And I need to be trying to prepare for that from every angle, especially the more money that I'm investing in the farm, the more I'm, you know, able to lose. So I'm like, okay, you know, 
kind of make sure that I'm making money. Yes, because you can't do it if you're not making money. You just, you can't sustain it. Not, not at that, that size. Well, I'm in year six and I'm still not making money, but I am lucky that my husband has a good job. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, I, I understand that one too. Um, so tell me about the TV experience because that sounds like a really interesting thing. How did that come about? Yeah. So I saw an ad in, on Facebook that was like, um, they're doing a farm show from the makers of Queer Eye. Like, is your farm in crisis and you need, you know, our help to come in and like s save it basically. And I was like, oh yes. And I had already been working on grant proposals in wintertime. So I had a lot of like, um, my thoughts and photographs organized. So we just, you know, went through the interview process and uh, it was a wonderful experience. Indy Officinalis is the host of the show and um, she's really great. Uh, I've followed her online for a long time because she's in like the foraging scene. And um, yeah, so they came and they spent about a week here and the crew was about 25 people and it was a big production. And then they came back six weeks later to like do an after. And they basically were like, okay, here's all these trees. We'll see you in six weeks. And my partner works out of state Monday through Friday. So he was gone like three of the weeks. And so I really had a lot of work to do to, to get all those trees in. You well, were determined and you got it yes. done. Yeah. Nice. It's a great little time capsule for us. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really, I want to see it, except that we don't have Disney anymore. We, we kind mm -hmm. of, um, when Hulu changed their, their plan and it is more expensive now. And I don't think Disney's included in the package anymore. We decided not yeah, to do it. Yeah, it is on Hulu also. Yeah, we don't even have Hulu anymore. We are, oh, we've yeah. been so busy. We've been so busy. We haven't really been watching anything. So we didn't see any point in spending the money to renew the subscription yeah, and and now i'm sad that i didn't because i can't watch your show <laughs> yeah. well it's I'm also sorry. gonna be on uh um cable on like the uh nat geo wild and i think it'll air in about two weeks on nat oh. geo wild okay well i think we still have national geographic maybe so maybe i'll get to see it that would be really yeah. really fun the show is pretty neat yeah it sounded like i i had never heard of it so i'm real excited that I'm talking with you about it. I, when you said you would like to be interviewed, I was like, oh, this is the big time. She's, she's done TV. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I was a kind of expecting a little bit more, um, like I thought like, oh, my social media is going to blow up and, you know, this is really going to be a, a big thing for me. And I think I got like three followers because they saw me <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's it. Well, how, how deflating is that? <laughs> yeah. So, oh you know. my I feel like oh, well. it's a beacon attracting the right people to me though, you know, so it's like people that are interested in, in permaculture and food forests and stuff like that. I'm going to, you know, they'll find me in, in due time. I'm sure probably when there's winter and everybody's stuck inside, that's when farmers are watching farming shows. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how busy summer is. And then you hit November when it starts to be cold and snowy and, and you're like, what do I do now? I, uh -huh. I can't be outside. Um, so we have we have a tree line on our property and this is going to lead to a question and we have wild black raspberries that were here when we moved in three years ago and awesome. we had a really really good 
um, crop in 2021. I made pies and we froze berries and we took some to my folks when we went to Maine and the last two years they haven't done well and I'm assuming it's the drought because yeah. we're not we're not watering the tree line because that would be crazy. Um, we also have two elderberry trees, bushes. They're not big. Um, and the first year we were here, they bloomed like crazy. And I couldn't get to the berries before the birds had gotten to them. So I think that's all that was here naturally. And then we put in the apple trees and then we bought peach trees that are supposedly Minnesota winter hardy and put those in this year and put in sweet cherry trees. We put in um, a Rainier cherry tree and then another variety because the one we bought that I don't know the name of had to cross pollinate with a Rainier cherry. And I don't mm. know what you know about cherry trees, but Rainier cherry trees are expensive. So I'm praying that they actually take and that we might see some cherries in a few years. Now, my question is, the tree line is not very wide and it's very long on our property line. And I'm trying to figure out what else we could do to encourage everything to grow well and what else we could possibly put in that makes sense. Do you have any ideas? Because I could really use some ideas. Yeah. So um, are you like trying to attract pollinators? We have pollinators. We have a man who keeps bees maybe a mile and a half down the road, honeybees. So mm -hmm. we have lots of honeybees. We have lots of bumblebees. We have wasps. We have flying critters that don't sting. Um, we have many, many pollinators. We have tons of butterflies. So I think we're good on that. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, asparagus would be an awesome addition. We have no, that in our, we have that in our garden. That's awesome. Which is yeah. right, right near the tree line. Mm -hmm. So, so there's the seven layers of the food forest. That's like the overstory trees, like the pecans and hardwoods and stuff. And then mm -hmm. the understory is your apple trees and, uh, and then you got the, yeah. And cherries, yep. And all that stuff. And then you got like the bushes, which is, you know, the elderberries you could do like hazelnut is kind of in a bush form, mm -hmm. um, you know, and finding things that grow really well locally to you. I'm not really sure like uh, what all that is, but yeah. um, service berries are really delicious. And, and I know that they're a popular one with the, with the birds as well. But um, uh, I put in a bunch of service berries and aronia berries are, um, they don't taste great, but they're like the highest level of like, uh, like acai, you know, like um, antioxidants and super good for you. And they're 10 times better at um, getting rid of a urinary infection than like cranberry. So they're like super medicinal. Wow. And yeah, yeah I'm like a big fan of aroni berries. I actually just tried one for the first time the other day because I have planted them and I have them as like little ones, but I went and visited someone else's food forest that had them. And man, they're, they're, they're nicknamed chokeberry for a good reason because they're prettiest like astringent. Um, okay. but yeah, and then you have, you know, the annuals and like, you know, dill is a good one. Uh, I, I grow a lot of cilantro for like the pollinators cause when it flowers, it brings a lot and then they just drop their seed. And so they're pretty, they're almost like a perennial because they just reseed so quickly. Yep. Plus I love Mexican food and like, um, the garlic and the onions and the cilantro, it all goes good together. 
And then um, you could do like grape vines, you know, because like the next layer is vining. So like hops, grapes, you know, and then like things that are going to be ground covers like like uh, strawberries and chives and things like that. Um, but there's like a, it's called a, in permaculture, it's called a, a guild, you know, like a, so, so that you have all the different layers and you have things that are going to attract pests and repel or attract pollinators and repel pests and stuff. So guild like G I L D or G U I L D. Yeah. G U I L D. Like okay. a, and then, and then, you know, it kind of shows you there's like some designs online and a lot of information about that stuff. So I'm not necessarily an expert, but well, you know more than I do at this point. So I thought yeah. I would ask I would just recommend you. like finding what grows, what's native. You know, like we, like I was saying how the um, Department of Conservation sells the native trees here and um, you can find, you know, like persimmons, you know, that might not be a common fruit, but if it's native and it grows well in your area, then, you know, you're going to have a better chance of actually getting fruit with a less watering and work. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was trying to get at because it's impossible um, to keep up, especially with as little rain as we've had. We have right. we have three acres, and maybe an acre and a half total of that is growing land. It's land we can grow on. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to figure out how to make that stretch as far as we can, because we we have a CSA that we. We share our produce with people who sign up in the spring. And, awesome. and we also do the farmer's markets. And this year we have a farm stand on our property. And people have been coming almost every day for tomatoes and cucumbers and things that That's we grow. And, my farm uh, stand does really well, too. I have one roadside farm stand. Yeah, and it's amazing. I've had people message me or call me and... I usually post that we're open, but there are days that I don't because I assume that everybody realizes that it's open all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And I've had people call me and say, do you have dill? And I say, yes. And they say, is it good? That's the question I get about dill all the time. Is it good? And right now it's probably not good. I'm sure it's gone to seed by now. But a month ago, I had a lady call and she said, is it good? And I said, I think it's excellent. What are you, what are you looking for? <laughs> and she said, well, it's not all brown, is it? And I said, no, no, it's not brown. It's, it's blooming and it's green. And I assume it'd be great for pickling. And she said, that's what I need. I will send my husband. I was like, great. Right. That. That's a popular herb and it's pretty easy to grow and it self seeds so readily. I usually just give it an area and let it just live there. Let it go crazy. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. But it's so funny because when people say, is it good? I yeah. I get stuck. I literally, my brain locks up because. Well, I feel like there's a stereotype, which people are just so disconnected from our food system, where if it's not packaged in plastic and everything and, you know, like on a supermarket shelf, it's like, you know, the farm and dirty and animals. And you know what I mean? They have this like idea and it's like the absolute opposite where, you know, it's fresh. It's. You know, like having it straight out of your garden, of course it's good. Yeah, and my husband goes out and cuts the dill for people. He doesn't have it just in a bucket of water. He cuts it right then mm -hmm. so that it's literally fresh from the farm. Right, so, and in that way it's the most nutrient-dense, the freshest, fresher it is. Yeah, and as soon as people realize that, they're like, oh, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So it's great, but but I get so 
it's like my gears in my brain lock up when people ask me questions like that because my immediate response and it sounds really sarcastic when i say it out loud i try not to is well yes of course it's good i wouldn't sell not good things to people right yeah you, you would say nope i don't have it it's out of season or something like that yeah no i would never sell somebody something yucky um, our cucumbers mm-hmm. are almost done and they're they're doing that white on the inside thing that cucumbers do when they get blight. Yeah. And I cut one of them open yesterday thinking I was going to have a really nice cucumber to eat and it was gross. And I was like, honey, cucumbers are done. Do not sell anymore. Right. So we're done have with you cucumbers. Have you tried growing the Armenian cucumbers? Because I have they're- not. They're a cross between a musk melon and a cucumber. And I've noticed that even though like it's a hundred degrees and you know, we're in a drought, those will still stay sweet and they grow to be like 18 inches at the time of harvest. So they're, you know, for me to charge $2 for them, it looks like you're getting a really great deal and mm-hmm. it's flavorful. So I've grown those for I, my garden. I will look into that because that would be something we could do next year. But our garden's almost done. I figure yeah. we have maybe two more weeks if we're lucky. Um, we have acorn squash and butternut squash that are just beautiful right now. And they're not ready to pick because they're not ripe, but we're going to have winter squash like crazy this year. I'm so excited. I can't actually grow any squash on my farm because we have squash bugs and the squash vine borers so bad that nothing mm-hmm. like I might get like one zucchini before the plant dies and they take up so much space that it's not like a good return on my my bed space. So, and then I know that I should use insect netting and really work on it and then, but, or like spray something, but, um, I don't really like spraying. So I just usually plant some and then let them kill it and then plant another little patch and I try to hide it, you know, like intercropping techniques. We used neem oil on our zucchinis and yellow summer squash this year and it worked. So I don't know it's it's as close to a natural thing as you can get, I guess. So maybe you could try that. I, I don't know if you want yeah, to. I but. My problem is like, <laughs> I swear every time um, I go to get the sprayer, like it's not working or, you know, I <laughs> like I bought a new sprayer and it was like missing a piece. And so I should get on a better, um, I need to get on a better fertilizer schedule and spray schedule, but that's just like a whole nother job. You know, it's, it's all jobs. Oh, yeah, it's, so, much it's work. so, so many things to keep it going. I'm, but the I'm nice still... thing about the CSA is that you have those guaranteed sales. Yes. Yes. My husband is the, is the farmer. He's the gardener and this is the best garden he's ever, ever done. And I keep telling him how proud I am of him because I like choosing the varieties that, that we're going to get to plant. And I like seeing them get planted, but what I really like is seeing them get, get sold or right. making food out of them in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm not a gardener. I'm absolutely not. I don't enjoy it. I, I don't like it. It's not my thing. It's his thing. And he's been a frustrated farmer his whole life. So now he's just happy all the time. Yeah. And I am the cook and I am the one who keeps the dishes done and the laundry done. And I always I, wish I had a wife because I, yeah, be I don't, yeah. I don't want to be the one inside cooking. Yeah. And I, I have to rein him in because he wants to plant all the things 
He wants to do everything all at once. And I'm, I find myself saying, you, you need to step back. You need to sleep on it and you need to take a breath. And then we can talk about what your plans are. Mm -hmm. because otherwise, I think now is a good time of year to plan because this is like the burnout time, you know, because mm -hmm. if you just let it wait all over winter when you're all cooped up and it's March, then all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to plant. <laughs> My garden's going to triple in size. Oh, but it's this I, time of year when you're exhausted <laughs> that you should be thinking about your plans. I've already heard him say, I'm going to, and then a stream of, of everything. Mm -hmm. It's an addiction. It sure is. And the other day he looked really, really tired. And I said, are you really glad the garden's going to be done in a couple of weeks? And he said, <laughs> yes. Exactly. I, I just looked at him. I, I said, are you really? He said, well, no. He said, he said, I'm already thinking about next year. And I said, of right. course you are. Of course, this is how this works. Mm -hmm. So it's an addiction and it's, it's a sickness and he's very, very happy having it. And I'm very yeah. happy he does have it. So, yeah, I'm glad that it is such a, uh, innate human desire to, to cultivate the land because otherwise we would be all starving. Or just eating a lot of meat. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay with eating meat, but trying, but eating meat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner would not work for me at all. Yeah. No, do you guys raise any raise any animals? We do not. Um, we have chickens for eggs, and we sell our eggs. We tried raising rabbits. We started last April, like two Aprils ago, and our bunnies did not get the memo about math, uh, rabbit math. And oh yeah. We, we ended up with one litter, and by this spring, I was done. I was like, no, they, they, they're dumb rabbits. They do not understand the concept of reproducing. So right. we're not going to see it's worth it to buy a proven doe because if you raise up a baby, I did that for my first two um, does, I think, because it's like, if they're not a good mom or they don't produce well, or they eat their young, you know, now you've got six, eight months invested in them that you've been feeding them to find out that they're, they're not a good breeder and Yes. That can be really disappointing. And, but like, honestly, I like, I, I uh, raised 200 pounds of meat in a year with rabbit and I was really proud of what I did. And, and like, they've got a great symbiotic relationship with the garden. Cause I can just like pull all my pea pant plants and put them in with, with the rabbits and everything. And then like use that droppings to put in the garden. But, uh, I really don't like butchering rabbits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause then, and then it's like when you cut off something's head and then like when it was time to like actually eat it, I was like, it was just like so gross to me, but I feel like it was a good experience to be a responsible omnivore. Yes. I, and me, me too, but we fed five rabbits for a year and got not one baby out of the deal. Yeah. So we were, we were over it. I mean, it, it was sad and it was fun to try it. And it was really fun to take care of four tiny baby bunnies. That was great. And the yeah. children of a couple of our CSA members just loved the babies. So when they would come pick up their share, they would, they would pet the bunnies and be mm -hmm. very excited that they had gotten to pet little tiny bunnies. But it just wasn't worth it. And I would love to have a couple of sheep or goats or any small animal. The thing is, we don't really have any place for them to graze. 
and I don't want to be feeding sheep and goats food that we buy at the the co-op because it would be it would just be too expensive so I make friends with people who have bigger animals and I go visit them it's just easier right and barter Mm-hmm. Yeah, the nice thing about rabbits is like you have that whole eight weeks of cuteness and then you butcher them and then it's like, you know, it's like pets, the excitement of having a pet like wears off in about eight weeks and then they get big and they're not cute anymore and you're like, okay, time for a freezer camp. Yeah, my son asked me if I was going to be able to to uh, let the babies go when it was time to butcher them. And my my theory is that the minute they actually kick me hard enough to hurt or blood me, is when they stop being cute. Right. And that was about right. It it worked. It's, (laughs) it's always hard. You know, you, you, you take care of these animals and if you get them as babies or you see them born, it's really hard to let them go. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get some pigs in the spring. And uh, I've been thinking about that, about how, you know, like I, uh, I was like, Ooh, that's going to be a hard day because, you know, like raising them and caring for them and, you know, it's like it's the nurturing side of us women that makes it like that we're good at raising animals, but it's hard to let them go like that. But at least you know that they've had a good life. Yeah. Um, I actually went to a place years ago and the lady had raised a couple of piglets from from babies to butcher and it was butcher day. And she she was having a hard time and mm-hmm. i i met the pigs they were still on the hoof and they were big they were big enough to be dangerous and i stood beside her and i had my arm around her back and i said if you feel like you're going to pass out lean into me because i have no relationship with these pigs i i'm mm-hmm. going to i'm going to be fine and the gun went off and she slumped into me she didn't pass out but but her whole body just went limp right and i gave her a second i said are you okay and she looked at me she had tears in her eyes and she said i i am and i said okay i was really glad i was standing there because i don't think she realized that she would be that affected by it Mm -hmm. but it's it's hard it's a hard thing and i i really think that people need to understand where their food comes from and that people who raise animals to become food are superheroes. They're they're strong and they take on a lot. Right. Yeah. And it, I it's think you super- appreciate your meal a lot more when you knew it, you know, and when you when you did all the put all the time into it. Yeah, and it's super easy to go to the grocery store and buy a a I can't find the word again. Um yeah. a chicken a chicken that is already in pieces. It's already been taken care of and there's Off no the feathers. And everything. There's no feathers. There's no face. You don't relate it to the animal that it was. And right. when we butchered our bunnies, I told my husband and my son that I could not be there. I, it was their game. And once they had it killed and no skin and no head and no feet anymore, I would be happy to deal with it because I knew mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. I wish that my partner um, would have done stuff like that for me, but he's he's basically like, you're the farmer, like this is your issue, this is these are yours, you got to take care of them. So he doesn't baby me at all like that. 
I said no. I mean, this wasn't even babying when when we talked about getting the rabbits. I said yeah, I cannot do it. All I will do is cry. Right. I, I am going to be no help help here. So if you want rabbits, I will I will do all the the stuff with the mom and the babies and make sure they're okay. But exactly. once it comes to butchering time, that's your your game. I cannot do it, and I will not do it. Right. And my husband was like, I can do it. I don't, I've been hunting deer and butchering deer forever. I was like, okay, cool. You do it. And it's also part of the reason that we're hesitant about sheep and goats, because if we got sheep and goats, we would get, we would get mama goats that are already pregnant and sheep that are already pregnant mm -hmm. and we would have babies. And invariably some of those babies will be male. And they will not produce milk and they will not produce more babies. So we would be butchering the males. And I can't. I know I can't do it. It's just not in me. Every right. time I see deer out in the wild, my first thought is how beautiful. And I'm just smitten with watching them. My husband's first thought is food. Because right. he's a hunter. So uh -huh. we come at this from very different angles. <laughs> Very different perspectives on it. We have, I have enough stuff recorded now, but I feel like there's more questions. Um, <laughs> so, so with your food forest, how long before you think it will actually be a viable business for you? Because I'm assuming you're going to be selling whatever you grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I do the farmer's market yeah, and my roadside stand. And uh, right now I do a lot of annuals. So, you know, there's the thing called like alley cropping where um, the trees are 20 feet apart and then there's the alleyway in the middle. So right now we're, we're focusing a lot on planting annuals in these alleys until eventually in like five to 10 years, then I have, uh, then I have like perennials that are producing like the plums and um, pawpaws and persimmons. And, you know, obviously the pecans won't produce for another like 30 to 50 years or something crazy oh. like that. But uh, we're just, you know, passing on this legacy and, um, you know, try, trying to do these permaculture techniques. I'm really interested in uh, medicinal herbs. And I am hoping like my long-term plan is you know, do this while my kids are in school so I can stay close to the house and I can be there for them. And then eventually I'd love to teach classes and give tours and shows that like, you know, like, hey, this is mullen and this is how you harvest it and this is what you could do and have like, you know, like little agritourism like courses, like let's all, you know, make tinctures and um, seed saving and like teaching these different techniques that I think people are really interested in. And um, we're doing a lot of relearning right now as a society because my uh, great grandmother, she like her mom, they had like every kind of fruit tree on their property and they canned all their food and raised all their meat. And, you know, we're like a like self-sufficient um, ecosystem on their farm. And, uh, so my, my grandmother was raised around that, remembers it. But then, you know, we went into the 50s where there was like, you know, the Industrial Revolution and, and things were fast and easy and women are getting in the workforce so that they're not uh, home like cooking meals and canning. And so things became like microwavable and quick and easy and convenient. And that's like where the direction of our society went. And now people are waking up to the fact that all of our food is making us sick 
you know, and everything and wanting to know these homesteading skills and um, self-sufficiency and regenerative agriculture stuff. So I think there's more and more of an interest in that. And um, because I live outside of a major city, I'm hoping that I can attract people to head down I-70 and come and learn from me. Um, but I feel like I'm still in the in the phase of of researching and learning and getting to know, um, you know, my land and stuff. But there's like classes that you can do, like you know, making inoculating mushroom logs and different things like that. Where uh, I'm hoping that I can make an income like that later. You know, like especially as I get older, because I'm I'm 37 years old. And right now I'm out in the garden, I'm working really hard and I'm sweating, but I'm like, that's not sustainable for me for a long term. It, it's but. not, it's not. I'm 53. It is not sustainable for long term, I will tell you right now. <laughs> but that's why I was like, you know, I, I was like, how can I make money while well, I'm a stay-at-home mom? And so I started off with the roadside stand where, you know, I was making like $20 a day, but the way that I figured I've got three children and if I was putting three kids in daycare, that would be like $80 and for me to like have gas to drive to the city and back, that's another like $15 and then eating lunch off the, you know, away from home. Mm -hmm. Well, that would take up almost all the money I make and all I'd have left over is about 20 bucks. So I figured, man, if I can make 20 bucks on the farm stand throughout the day, like while my babies were napping, I'd go harvest and stock and, you know, post on social media that I have, you know, the farm stand going, that that is a way that I can make that money without having to be away and having someone else raise my kids for me. But now that my children are school age, this is my first year having everybody in school. Yay! I'm focusing more. <laughs> I know, right? I'm out of diapers. I'm like, things are getting easier. I was pregnant and breastfeeding for a lot of this journey of building up my farm. So it's been a lot of really slow growth and a lot of life lessons and taking my time and, you know, living in the moment. But um, we just got a grant from the NRCS and uh, we got a, a high tunnel. It's a 96 by 30. And they actually paid for the entire thing. And I just signed a contract that I have to grow food in it for five years. So um, that's being erected. And then I'm going to grow. Um, we're doing like the Jean Payne method of, of like composting wood chips. And then we're going to run water through the compost pile and then uh, underneath our beds. And so that we're like warming the soil. And then I'm going to do a, like a low tunnel over that to kind of keep that heat inside there. So that's our experiment for this winter, but we're going to try to have the first tomatoes at market um, using our high tunnel. And I think that there's like $10,000 to be made just having early tomatoes because people, you know, they're just itching to have the first summer tomato. Oh yeah. And, uh, and then I'm, I'm having the problem now, you know, just by growing field tomatoes that I'm getting this huge flush of tomatoes the same time every home gardener in my area is. And because I live pretty rural, um, everybody grows tomatoes. And that's why I specialize in garlic and onions, because if you're canning salsa or, you know, spaghetti sauce, you know, you're going to need the peppers and the onions and the garlic to make, you know, but if you already have tomatoes, like then you're going to be looking through those other ingredients elsewhere. And so I was trying to like fill in that niche. Plus one of the reasons I love to grow garlic and onions is they're shelf stable. They sit on the farm stand without having to like, you know, wilt or, or need to be cold. And um, you harvest those halfway through the growing season. So it's like by June, I'm having garlic and onions for sale. And then I have it through the rest of the farmer's market season. So like a lot of that really hard work is done before the really intense heat of July and August. It's, uh, it's almost like passive income, but there's nothing passive about farming. So, Right. Yeah. Uh, 
but I, I sell a lot of garlic braids because I'm trying to get people to buy their year supply of garlic from me at the farmer's market. So I'm like, hey, this is going to keep, it's going to get you through your Thanksgiving and Christmas cooking. Um, and I'm like, uh, Chinese garlic is terrible. I don't know if you've ever gone down that rabbit hole learning about um, how garlic is grown in China, but that's where the majority of our come from. So, um, but yeah, so I'm hoping that uh, right now I made about um, a little over $17,000 in sales this year between uh, at the market, you know, close to like a thousand dollars a week during, during like my productive months. And I'd like to make $40,000. And I feel like that's about all I could do without having to hire um, additional people, which I really don't want to have to try to to hire and train people to farm. I don't know if you've ever had anyone come work for you, but I feel like everyone works half the speed I do. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't, I don't make $15 an hour, so I don't want to pay you $15 an hour to work slower than me. It just creates a lot of problems. So anyway, I'm hoping that with the high tunnel, I can do over the winter, I'll probably try to do like spinach and lettuce and that will make it where um, I'm extending the months where I'm actually making an income, which will really help. And then in the summertime, um, then I'll have the, the early tomatoes, which is is a good money. And then um, I'm really interested in like the super hot peppers, even though I'm not like a hot pepper or hot sauce person. I just like like the idea of growing them. And that's kind of like another niche, which is pretty much what as a small farmer in this area, I'm like, okay, what can I grow that other people aren't growing, you know, so I can fill that spot at the market. So I do a lot of loofah gourds. And that's another thing that's like, um, once I process it, it's, it's, it's in a big, you know, full of totes and I just take them to market and I have those guaranteed for market for the rest of the season. So. Awesome. All right. Well, I absolutely do have more than enough recorded now. I try to do a 30-minute episode and we're at 41 minutes. So um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, Thank you're you. welcome. Mm -hmm. have, have a great day. <laughs> you too. All right. Bye.